So this year during Epiphany, we're doing a series in Philippians, looking at the revelation of Christ in this letter of Paul to those in Philippi. And this morning, we want to look at what it might be to respond to the revelation of God in Christ. So just to get us kind of mentally heading in that direction, of course, the revelation of Christ came more than 2,000 years ago. And it's not too much to say, I don't think, that humankind has been struggling with it ever since. Some, of course, just ignore it. Others, I think, remain honestly confused. Some, though, like Paul, as we just read, give themselves wholly or totally to God in Christ. So I want to get to this notion of a kind of an appropriate response to the revelation by breaking into the middle of our text, if you look at verse 21. Where here we find an inspired model for responding to the epiphany with these very famous words of Paul. And I wish we could see this in Greek because the Greek text is very pithy. It's just, it's to live Christ, to die gain. You you have to supply verbs. It's just, it's very pithy, almost poetic. You kind of sense the all or nothingness of Paul. The English has it, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now those are obviously very famous Christian words. And we might even think of them as doctrinal or even maybe something like dogma. And, you know, and fair enough, you know, as as coming from, you know, the inspired holy canon of scripture, right? So uh, yeah, of course. But I want you to look just a bit beyond that this morning and to realize this is a person. I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that these were like real live people and they were as smart as we are. Right? We might be more advanced technologically, but we're not any smarter. These are people very capable of expressing themselves, very capable of understanding what was going on around them, very, very capable of sussing out implications and understanding you know, what's going on around them. So this is a man languishing in prison unfairly, and he's writing what New Testament scholars would say is probably his most personal letter, that the letter to the Christians in Philippi is Paul's most personal letter. So you are literally getting here a glimpse into the heart and soul of a man who had an epiphany of Christ and said, now for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we see that Paul's whole sense of himself is wrapped up in following Jesus. It's following Jesus that gave meaning to the various elements and events of his life. And so his whole, you know, kind of sole point of reference was that Jesus be exalted, as the text said, or magnified. So the background here is Paul's been having correspondence with the church in Philippi while he is in prison. And he's facing this dilemma, as we read. The dilemma is, will I be released from prison? Will I languish in prison a long time? If I'm released, I can come back and see you. If I stay here for a long time, that's a pain because we miss each other. But there's the very real possibility that I'll be executed. And so this is his dilemma when he writes to them, right? This is a human dilemma. That's why I don't want you to see this as just dogma or doctrine. This is real life human stuff happening here. You know, just picture a Christian being captured by Al-Qaeda or something today. And it was a missionary from your church. You'd be wondering what's going to happen. Will they be released? Will they be held for 25 years? Will they be killed, beheaded? This is what's going on. This is real live human drama. It becomes appropriately doctrine as we think of it as the word of God, but I want you to feel this morning the drama. And so what Paul's feeling in his deepest inner being 
is that he would love to be able to return to Philippi and to continue his ministry there. But he just knows that if he can't, and even if they execute him, that that's, that's gain. Like if the powers of this world apparently win, Paul sees this, it's still gain. For he says in verse 20, if you look at your passage, if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me, meaning I can come back and see you and the other uh, churches around you. He says, but I don't know what to choose. I'm, I'm torn between the two. I really do desire for myself to depart and to be with Christ, which is by far better. Now, I don't have time to get into it this morning, but I just should say this. If you've ever wondered what happens to you when you die, this is maybe the clearest statement in the New Testament. You will be with Christ. Now, after that, scholars have poured in all kinds of meaning to that word with because no, no one knows exactly what, what does it mean to be with Christ, but you should just know that whatever it is, is the conscious presence of Christ. And Paul knows this, and this is, gives him the ability then to say, but it's, that's better by far, but it's more necessary that I remain in the body and be able to serve you. And so again, this is Paul I want you to feel the soil from which this comes. This is Paul from an absolute devotion to the interests of the gospel above all else. That's what kind of creates in him the imagination for putting others above his own deep longing. His own deep longing was to depart and be with Christ. But he knows that as the apostle to these fledgling churches around Asia Minor, that they need him. And so he then is modeling for them the attitude and behaviors that in the next chapter, we'll see in a moment, he commends to them, and that is that you put others' interests above your own. Now, again, that's the kind of sort of Christian dogma, or maybe I should say Christian moral, that everybody would nod their head at. But I think if we want to do a little bit of honest soul work this morning, I think we should probably all admit that this is hard, that this is not at all intuitive. What's intuitive to us are things like personal freedom and individual rights. Those are the kind of things that are deep in our DNA. And, and of course, they should be valued. But in our culture, they're kind of the highest ideals to seek. But for Paul, remaining alive just simply allowed him to carry out his calling to live a sacrificial life for others. And execution was just the achieving of this final fulfillment of hope of being able to be with Christ. So throughout the Pauline letters, we see him describing himself as being in Christ and asking others, are you in Christ? Like today we might say, are you saved? Are you converted? And that's fine. But Paul was just working out of a little different mindset. He sees himself as being in Christ. And that's his inspiration for sharing, therefore, in Christ's sufferings. It's what funds his sense of personal devotion and commitment. You might say, to use a theological phrase that some of you would be aware of, Paul's stuck between the already and the not yet. So in the already... He has a life of service, as the text said, because of the supply of the Spirit and Christ in him. He has the already of a life of service. But he knows coming is a not yet, a consummation of being in Christ that will come at death. So I, I try not to use big words, but this one's important. <laughs> that eschatological reference, and eschatology just simply means the fulfillment of all things. Paul holds that in his brain and in his heart, his soul. I think it had been steeped into his emotions and his will. And that orientation towards the end is what gave the focus and perspective to him 
in the various troubles of his life. And if you've ever read, for instance, if you've read recently the letters to the Corinthians or others, you know that Paul faced enormous trouble in his life and managed to make his way through it. Well, why? Because he had this other sort of orientation that didn't mean that he divorced himself from his actual life. It meant that he had a way of giving his actual life ultimate meaning. Are you feeling me there? Super important. We're not dualists. We don't deny present reality. It's that present reality is given a different shape. I just got home very late last night from Florida where I had been attending a week of bishop's meetings and a funeral for a key donor. And one of our guests at the bishop's meeting was the Archbishop of Pakistan, Archbishop Humphrey. In the last two or three years, you've seen pictures or video on the news of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, ISIL bombing Christian churches in Pakistan. Those are his churches. Little babies blown to bits. Remember the one where the two um, bombers went outside on the courtyard after church and they simultaneously exploded their vests and killed, I forget, 80-something people and injured 80 more or something out on a courtyard. They just walked out after church and blew themselves up and everybody around them. Remember, that was the one where they filled their packs with um, ball bearings so that that would create the most damage possible. Osama bin Laden lived 20 minutes from him. I mean, he didn't know it. Nobody knew it, but he did, just down the street. So just think of like, here to Tustin. And Bishop Humphrey told us that when they meet young ISIS people, and you gotta remember, most of these people are 14, 15, 16, 18, 20 years old. I'll never forget as long as, my, as long as I live. He said, when we find a group of them, we go shake their hand. We, we say, we, we want to be with you. And when they can, they read the Quran and the Bible together and they, they try to help them see something different. And probably the closest thing I've ever seen in my lifetime, I mean, I've known other people. I obviously never knew Mother Teresa, but when you think of men like that, I was telling Debbie and Carol driving here today, he was so peaceful. It's like he wasn't like, are you even awake? I mean, he had the most peaceful demeanor of very rare people I've ever seen, just this incredibly peaceful demeanor who literally lives with round-the-clock fear of his churches being blown up. And that's why I said it's just so important that we do not deny the realities of our present life as we actually know it, but that we find its meaning in something greater. But again, we're implicitly taught all the time that avoiding death and or fearing overwhelming service to others, that we have these default positions, it seems like, of clinging to leisure, of possessions, of entertainments or distractions, rather than risking it all on God and neighbor. And I thought as I was getting ready for this that very few of us can read this paragraph, I think, without our discipleship being deeply challenged. And that is certainly true for me. But I say this to you all the time, but only because it's important. But you mustn't do it in guilt and shame. This won't get you anywhere. Hear it as a hopeful vision. Hear it as a, um, a reality into which you can learn to live. And that as I pray over you every week, God loves you right where you are, but he also invites you to follow him. And in following him, we will find these realities that Paul found for himself. So in verse 27, Paul turns from his concerns about being in prison and what's going to happen to me, will I be released or executed? And he turns to the concerns of the people he loves in Philippi, and he says to them, whatever happens to me, release, long imprisonment, or death, I want you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
And what Paul's viewing here is that they lived in a very multicultural setting just like we do. They lived with a lot of pluralism, maybe not as much philosophical pluralism as we live with, but they lived with an essential sort of human pluralism over politics and religion and economics, all the things that we do. And Paul knew that Christians were hated and that they were seen at a minimum as being dopey because their leader was the equivalent of electrocuted. You're, you're following this guy who got electrocuted? Or, you know, when they um, stick a needle in your arm? Really? really? You're following that guy? And so Paul's thinking about the public behavior of Christians, and he's saying, I want them to be beyond reproach, that your public behavior be governed by Jesus, not by social norms. And again, I, I just thought as I sat with this, like, why does this seem almost laughably impossible, right? I mean, if anything ever felt like religious rhetoric, like, that's got to be it, right? And I thought even more, this is true of any religion and of any denomination. I mean, the phrase nominal Catholic didn't come out of nowhere. That means something. The average Orthodox person's nominal. And again, you might not think this and, and, unless you are, in, you know, um, somehow have these things come to you. But the average person in Islam, it's, it's very nominal. In any religion, there are very few sincere followers. And of course, when religion goes bad, as it happens to be with Islam right now, but it has in the past with Christianity, when religion gets bad, it just makes it even worse. Because then it seems like, well, the really sincere are just crazy. And so we then feel caught. What, what would it mean? So you may remember that a number of months ago, we did some work in our uh, adult Sunday school class and here in church on James K. Smith's work. And I said to you that I think one of the great gifts that, that uh, Jamie Smith has given us in the last five or 10 years that he's been writing is the notion that answering the question, what do you want, is the key question for discipleship. Because as Jamie teaches, you become what you love. And so this is why I don't think we should ever start with, here's the standard, here's where I am, and then that funds and imagine that that gap funds an imagination for guilt and shame. Far better, rather, to ask the question, what do I want? Here's the vision of the New Testament. I'm here. What do I want? This is why I think so many billions, literally billions of people on the earth are nominally religious because they don't actually want, they don't actually have a well-organized will around following the teachings, in our case, of Christ. And so it's the formation of our loves and our desires. It's what many people have called our vision of the good life. This is what governs us in subconscious ways, and this is what Jamie's trying to help us with. And of course, he's right on track with Jesus, as we read this morning, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And so Jesus' famous words, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. Now, can you hear in that the set of your will? Seek first. That implies a desire, a love. But if actually our loves, our desires are malaligned to that end, to that vision, we will never get there. And thus we end up stuck in religious guilt and shame. And I just can hardly think of anything worse. And that kind of guilt and shame is what has caused not just our culture, but cultures all over the world to get frustrated with religion and give up. Who wants to live in guilt and shame the rest of their life? But think about what a very different thing it is to say, I can't really hit in tennis a very good top spin forehand, but I really want to. And so I go out there every day with the little machine, tosses balls over the net to me and over and over again, because I have this passionate desire to do something dopey like hit a top spin forehand in tennis. But I do it out of love. 
Like I have this vision of being able to do it. Can you see how those are very different paths of religion than the one that just merely sees the gap and kind of gets into that default position of guilt and shame? So now chapter two, verse one, we need to start wrapping up here. There's this long list of commands that Paul gives us from being united in Christ, and I just want to cover a couple of them. So he says, be like-minded, having the same love. This is chapter two, verse one. Be like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. And again, that just sounds to me like crazy and impossible. I mean, right now, if I just said word association, let's just play word association. And I said, uh, New England Patriots, we could probably get a pretty good row going here of who hates them and who loves them and why. They're cheaters. No, Bilicek and Brady are brilliant, right? God forbid if I were to say a political word, right? We'd probably be throwing shoes at each other, you know, denouncing each other in that particularly Arab way, you know, with, within 20 minutes. And so you read this and you think, well, what the heck, Paul, are you crazy? I mean, think about it. The church differs over theology, politics, style of worship, styles of leadership, over morals. I got my first email about 10 days ago saying, Todd, is smoking pot a sin? I know it's now legal. They want to know, is it a sin? We could probably get a pretty good argument going here about that. (laughs) Especially if you're my age. (laughs) Right? So what the heck could Paul be thinking? Have the same mind in you? Well, first of all, the Greek term here doesn't mean cognition. It doesn't mean he wants us to cogitate alike. It means have the same vision. He's not picturing automatons in lockstep who have the same opinion about everything. What he's picturing is a group of people who, despite their differences, have the same mindset. And that mindset is to be willing to show love for one another by putting the needs of others first. Now, you can do that hating the patriots or loving them. You can do that with difference of opinions about pot. So Paul's not asking asking here for unity of thinking. He's talking about a a worldview that says others are more important than me, that this is what God modeled in sending Christ for me who was crucified for me. This is what it means for me to be in Christ. It means to share in his sufferings for the good of others. This is Paul's whole mindset. And it's what he's wanting them to have. And therefore he says, so what that would mean is stuff like this. You wouldn't do anything then out of selfish ambition if you look at your text or vain conceit but rather in humility that you'd value one another above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Now again, this seems impossible because at the heart of human fallenness, somewhere deep in all of us is still an Adam and an Eve that is marked by self-interest and selfish ambition and self-aggrandizement at the expense of others. I cannot aggrandize myself except for you somehow paying for it right? Who's going to aggrandize me? You. That means I'm using you, not serving you. Are you feeling me here? And so this, and this is what sits in in so much of us. And, And so if we just look at this for a quick second, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. What is that? Well, selfish ambition just means to hold one's desires or one's goals as above or more important than others. And of course, in a church or any sort of human endeavor, such striving causes contentiousness. This is why James wrote, you may remember uh, James 3.16, where you have selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. Or as the message has it, 
where you find selfish ambition, things fall apart and everyone ends up at the other's throats. And that's because what happens when you have selfish ambition is people become to you something. They lose their personhood. They become a thing uh, that's to be used for your ends rather than persons to serve for God's ends. And that's where we're back to eschatology or for another nasty big word, teleology. That is to say, tell us, end. What is the end of your life? Where are you shooting from? Where are you going? Well, in this case, for what we're looking at this morning, two, again, two roads diverge in the middle of the woods. It's either seeing others as something for you to use for your life or seeing yourself as somebody who God has given on this planet to serve others. Or he says, don't do anything out of vain conceit. Well, what's vain conceit? Well, again, if you're my age, Carly Simon taught us. Right? You're so vain you probably think this song is about you, don't you? Don't you? And okay, never mind. Right, so what is vain conceit? It's simply an elevated or unseemly sense of ourself. It's an excessive concern about how we appear in the world. So Paul says, I, I want you to just gently, peacefully, little by little, through your own formation in Christ, just set those, set those things aside and rather gently, little by little, gather up to yourself humility. So humility is, I think we can say, one of the fundamental responses to the revelation of God in Christ. If there's anything that, that human beings would have that seems natural and normal to me, to an epiphany of God in Christ, it would be humility. The first number one thing. Now, not a false modesty or a low opinion of oneself, but I, I like this. Like, what if we could just recapture a sense of creatureliness, creator, creatureliness, and that that sense of creatureliness, of being created for the good of others, would be what mostly funds our imagination of ourselves. Remember in Luke 22, Jesus said the greatest to his disciples, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. That was always the vision of Jesus for his followers. All right, well, we need to bring this to an end. But I just, I want to say a couple things about, okay, how could we gently, like sort of taking it easy on ourselves? How can we, you know, giving ourselves some space, how can we move towards this sort of loving, serving, otherly unity? And uh, almost all of you, of course, will know Bonhoeffer's favorite, famous book, Life Together. And I just want to, four really quick things that Bonhoeffer said, and maybe one of them you can attach to and make it a practice for some period of time here in the future. So the first thing Bonhoeffer commends to us is th that we learn to hold our tongues and that we just absolutely refuse to speak unkindly. Now, again, I think Bonhoeffer had amazing moral vision, and I'm not an expert on Bonhoeffer, and, and I don't at all mean to be critical. But I just want to say here, you can't gruntingly stop speaking unkindly to people. You have to become the kind of person for whom speaking unkindly wouldn't be natural and normative. And that is the road of spiritual transformation. You might be able to will yourself for a day or a week, but you're not going to be able to will yourself into becoming a consistently different person. To do that, you're going to have to work on your inner person. Secondly, Bonhoeffer says, learn to listen long and patiently so as to genuinely understand others and their needs. Thirdly, he says, learn to bear the burden of others by preserving their freedom and forgiving their sins. And then lastly, Bonhoeffer would say to recognize that Christian authority is characterized by service and not drawing attention to oneself. Now, I said last week that as we came to the end of our messages during Epiphany, remember in Advent, we 
we stood and we prayed for one another. And in this one, I just felt this little inspiration to um, have non-altar call altar calls. And what I mean by that is I just felt this inspiration to, like an evangelist would, stand here every week and ask you to decide. So I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand or come forward, but I am going to ask you to decide. Do you want the kind of life depicted in this passage? And I just want you to be really honest. And if it, it's okay, actually, if you don't. What would be wrong is to not want it and to be unconscious of that. Because, again, as Smith and lots of others have taught us, we're animated by our subconscious or pre-conscious self. And so if you become conscious about it this morning and you can actually look at it, would you like to recommit yourself this morning to Christ and to him alone? And from such a commitment, would you like there to flow from you a life that is aimed at the good of others? Would you like to come to the place where you could say, for to me to live is Christ, to join him in his ongoing life in the world for the sake of others.